Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people. I'm your host, Emma Fabriguet. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 3 of our in-depth series on the intersection of faith and politics. You know, what about the rights of minority groups? What about women's rights? And this is the debate taking place in various parts of the Muslim world. Today, I'm joined with Raihan Ismail, an author and senior lecturer at the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies at ANU, to discuss her work on reclaiming Salafism. For those people that are listening and don't know who you are and the work you've done, could you give a brief introduction of your professional background, work you've done, and um, and what your interests are? Wow, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, so I am a ARC DECRA fellow, and I'm also a senior lecturer at the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies. And I've been at the ANU since 2009 when I started my PhD So I work on political Islam, on sectarianism in the Middle East. I look at religious institutions in Muslim societies. I also deal with gender, um, particularly in the context of women in Islam and how women are treated in various parts of the Muslim world. So I'm very interested in the Middle East and I'm half Egyptian and half Malaysian. So I'm also very interested in Islam in Southeast Asia, particularly Islam in Malaysia. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. What I did want to speak on today and the focus of our uh, podcast was about your uh, article, uh, which is from 2019, titled Reclaiming Saudi Salafism and the Saudi Religious Circles and the Threat of ISIS. Now, before we dive into it, um, for those that aren't super familiar with Salafism to begin with, or the religious makeup of Saudi Arabia, could you kind of take us through that and also the differences between Shia and Sunni Muslims? Of course. Um, So when we look at Saudi Arabia, I think it is estimated that 70 to 85 percent of Saudi citizens are Sunnis and you have 10 to 15 percent of Saudi citizens are Shia. So Saudi Shia mainly located in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, which is an oil rich region. Um, When we look at the Sunni-Shia split, I would argue that it started as a disagreement over who would succeed Prophet Muhammad as the caliph or ruler of the Muslim community. And Sunnis generally believe that Muhammad's successor should be elected by the broader Muslim community. The Shia, on the other hand, argue that the position was to be passed down within Muhammad's family. So basically from this dispute, Two religious and political entities were developed. The Sunnis and Shia formulated their own interpretations of certain aspects of Islam, extending to doctrinal beliefs and different prayer rituals. Um, As for Salafism, most scholars would argue that Salafism refers to the followers of pious ancestors, so mainly um, looking at the first three generations of Muslims. So when you look at Salafism, the movement took different shapes and forms throughout history, but modern-day Salafis would advocate for religious authenticity. They advocate for you know the purification of Islamic creed from any profanations, and also they promote social conservatism um, to preserve Islamic morality based on their own interpretations. 
Okay. And so then when you, in your article, use the, um, the term ulama, what does that mean? Ulama can be defined as uh, learned men. Um, so the word refers to men of religion in Muslim societies, those who are highly qualified and highly well-versed in Islamic traditions. Uh, so those with um, religious knowledge, um, they have a lot of following, they have religious authority. So when I refer to ulama, I'm basically referring to men of religion or learned men. So when you start getting into your article, I know you mentioned three categories of, of ulama. Could you walk us through what the demographic of each group is? Of course. We have basically three trends. Generally, scholars generally agree that there are three broad trends within Salafism in Saudi Arabia. We have the quietest clerics or the quietest ulama, and they often support the state. Um, They promote obedience to Saudi rulers. They believe in preserving security um, against anarchy and chaos of rebellion, as you've mentioned in your question. Um, And you have a more extreme branch within the quietest trend. Um, Here we're referring to clerics who promote radical, um, absolute obedience to the ruler. Uh, So in their case, they will not hesitate uh, um, to endorse state's decisions, including political decisions that are controversial. Uh, For example, issuing statements in support of Saudi Arabia's decision to boycott Qatar in 2017 following the Qatar diplomatic crisis. So here you have the loyalist clerics, those who are extreme in their support for the state. The second trend um, within Salafism, particularly in the context of Saudi Arabia, is the Haraki trend or the activist trend. Um, And the activist trend emerged um, in the 1960s, and these clerics opposed the liberal or liberalization of Saudi society. Um, They were frustrated with social liberalization taking place in Saudi society. And the Harakis or the activists were influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, here, in terms of ideology, they are not really committed to Muslim Brotherhood's interpretation of Islam because they are very Salafis. They talk about social conservatism, purification of Islamic creed. But in terms of activism, including how to mobilize, including you know, uh, promoting their religious ideals and so on and so forth. Uh, from the 1990s, the Harakis actually lobbied for political reforms as well. So in the 1960s, it's all about social promoting social conservatism. But from the 1990s, they started to embrace um, political activism. Um, they were very uh, vocal against the Saudi state, particularly when the Saudi state um, invited U.S. troops to be based on Saudi soil to fight against Saddam Hussein. Uh, This is during the first Gulf War. The quietists, of course, supported the Saudi state, issued a ruling in support of the Saudi, Saudi government's decision on the basis that you are fighting um, a tyrannical regime, and it is important to protect Saudi Arabia, but also Kuwait. And more importantly, this is the lesser of two evils, according to the quietest clerics. Um, and finally, the third category 
of clerics in Saudi Arabia would, you know, scholars have generally argued that you have the jihadi Salafi trend. And the jihadi Salafi trend uh, challenged the Saudi state and its clerics. Um, they abhor quietist clerics, but they're also very critical of activist clerics because they believe that activist clerics are um, not committed enough to the cause. The jihadi Salafis believe that the state is too corrupt, the Saudi state is un-Islamic, and it fosters relations with non-Muslims, and therefore it is important to reject the legitimacy of the Saudi state. Moving on to when in 2012 the Syrian government intensified retaliation against anti-regime protests, which led to the Syrian uprising, could you explain why this even began in the first place and how it later came to involve other Sunnis in Muslim countries? So the Syrian government, of course, retaliated against anti-regime protests in 2012. And when you look at the Syrian protesters, how it all started, you know, Syrian protesters were motivated by the Arab Spring uprisings that resulted in the fall of Bin Ali in Tunisia and also Husni Mubarak in Egypt. So Syrians generally took to the streets to protest against Bashar al-Assad's rule. They protested against authoritarianism, repression, and also inequality in Syria. And of course, as you've mentioned, the state retaliated brutally. Um, And as a result, uh, some of them mobilized and armed groups were created. And that attracted Sunnis from other parts of the Muslim world, including Egypt, Tunisia, Indonesia, and also parts of Central Asia. So many Sunnis were committed to the idea of preserving and supporting Sunnis in Syria. Because when you're looking at some of the news that emerged um, following the Syrian uprising, you saw brutality committed by the state, airstrikes against um, Sunni protesters. And of course, it became really quite sectarian um, due to the fact that Iran got involved, Hezbollah also got involved in the civil war. I would also argue that some Salafi clerics were responsible in promoting a more sectarian interpretation of the conflict. So basically arguing that this is a sectarian conflict motivated by Iran's ambitions in the region. Um, You have Hezbollah, Syria and Iran cooperating against Sunnis in the region and that galvanized Sunni sentiments and also Sunni identity and therefore uh, motivated some Sunnis to actually travel to Syria to fight in this war in support of their Sunni co-religionists. So what role did the Saudi government have in supporting the civil war and how did the different ulamas react? Yeah, so the Saudi government condemned the Assad regime in Syria and declared absolute support for the protesters um, since 2012. And the Saudi government decided to arm the Free Syrian Army at that time. And here we're looking at a group of Syrians who um, some would argue quite secular um, to fight against the Assad regime. Quietists and activist ulama largely condemned the Syrian regime. So they called for jihad, basically arguing that you have an obligation to fight. For jihadi Salafis, they urge a collective armed struggle and call for all Sunnis to participate in the Syrian civil war. So the jihadi Salafis did not distinguish between Syrians and non-Syrians. They argue that it is important for all Sunnis to take up arms against the Assad regime. 
The Young Diplomat Society is more than just a podcast. Check out our website to explore the worldly news that we cover. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe to get your weekly insight from our reporters in the world this week. And then so if we dive into jihadi rebellions and kind of the support to kind of go to Syria and fight, um, it kind of dives into organizations such as Al-Qaeda, the Muslim Brotherhood and ISIS. So could you give us a difference between those three? Perhaps I'll begin by looking at the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a movement founded by Hassan al-Banna in 1928 in Egypt. So the Muslim Brotherhood is a religious, political and social movement that emerged in the late 1920s. Um, They wanted to fight against British rule over Egypt, but the movement also promoted social services. Um, They also wanted to create a society that is more Islamic. So it became quite transnational because of the ideals propagated by the Muslim Brotherhood. So the Muslim Brotherhood activists were able to inspire other Muslims in Southeast Asia, even in Pakistan. So you have a movement that is very similar as well. It is often accused by its detractors as a violent religious and political movement. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood basically promotes the establishment of an Islamic state. So arguing that it is important to preserve the character of the state as Islamic. And because of that, um, some are quite critical of the Muslim Brotherhood because they think that, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is ideologically rigid. You know, what about the rights of minority groups? What about women's rights? And this is the debate taking place in various parts of the Muslim world when you look at Islamist parties in general. However, having said that, I would strongly argue that they've renounced violence and participated in, you know, in elections and also, the, you know, respect the political process in general. Al-Qaeda, on the other hand, is actually more simple because it is a militant organization founded by Osama bin Laden in the late 1980s. They fought against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. They supported um, Afghan Mujahideen. They endorsed violence. Um, They want to create a caliphate committed to the idea of preserving the integrity of Islam and also Muslims in general and easily, you know, engage in violence. And that's part of their political doctrine. ISIS, on the other hand, is an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. They were part of Al-Qaeda. However, uh, following the Syrian uprising, some members of Al-Qaeda traveled to Syria, fought in Syria, became very powerful in Syria, and they were effective in fighting against the Assad regime and decided to establish their own organization in which they denounced Al-Qaeda. So the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was killed last year, he rejected the authority of Al-Qaeda because he thought my militants were doing a wonderful job in Syria and therefore I'm the leader of this organization. So when you look at ISIS, for instance, they reject Al-Qaeda, but they're more brutal um, in comparison to Al-Qaeda. They engage in extreme violence, and the aim is to create shock 
and also instill fear in their enemies. They believe in establishing a caliphate, unlike Al-Qaeda, who decided that one day we will establish a caliphate. But ISIS said, no, we're establishing a caliphate now. Uh, we don't have to wait. For Al-Qaeda, it's about creating a conducive environment. You destabilize the position of your enemies, and therefore you assist um, for the next generation to actually be able to establish a caliphate. Yeah, I know that in your work, you mentioned that it's difficult to disassociate Salafism from ISIS entirely. So could you explain why and also the use of the term takfir? The reason it is a bit difficult um, to dissociate ISIS from Salafism in general is because of the Salafi ideals propagated by Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab in 1744. So Ibn Abd al-Wahhab is known as the founder or the eponymous founder of Wahhabism. So Ibn Abd al-Wahhab and the founder of the first Saudi state cooperated and fought against their enemies. Other Sunni tribes, the Ottoman Empire, Egyptians, they fought against them and declared their infidelity because they argue that these are not true Muslims. Some of them engage in Islamic mysticism and that is not Islamic. The most important thing is to preserve your religious authenticity and also your belief in God and promote absolute monotheism. Anything that violates monotheism or absolute monotheism is considered removed from Islam. So you can imagine, you know, during the first Saudi state, the Ibn Abdul Wahhab and the ruler at that time declared the infidelity of all Muslims except for their followers. So here we're looking at the doctrine of takfir. So takfir means declaring the infidelity of a believer. So if someone claims to be a Muslim, um, but you're not good enough, um, Ibn Abdul Wahhab would say that you're removed from Islam. So I'm declaring that you are an infidel. Therefore, takfir is that practice of declaring the infidelity of a believer. So that was really common um, during the first Saudi state. But the modern Saudi state was established in 1932. Uh, here we're looking at complex bureaucracies, um, oil wealth. We're looking at technocrats being trained and governing the state. So the clerics were relegated. And that's what ISIS is all about. And that's what ISIS claims, that we have to go back to the first Saudi state. That's the best model we have for a true Salafi state. And when you look at the concept of takfir, for instance, they would argue that we're doing what Ibn Abdul Wahhab did. And that's why if you look at Dabiq and Rumiya, so these are ISIS magazines, they refer to the first Saudi state. Um, they talk about Ibn Abdul Wahhab's commitment to preserving Salafism, to preserving Islam and declaring the infidelity of those who are not true Muslims. Um, and that's why it's very hard for the modern Saudi state, particularly the religious establishment and the activist clerics. And they are arguing that, oh, ISIS is not Islamic. ISIS is removed from Islam and so on and so forth. And yet it is very difficult because ISIS militants refer to the first Saudi state as this ideal. So again, it's very complex when we're trying to distance Salafism from groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda because of the ideological foundations provided by um, Salafi theoreticians. So then how did 9-11, the Syrian civil war, and then the rise of ISIS affect the religious discourse in Saudi Arabia and the general rhetoric today? 
So here we're looking at the Saudi religious establishment promoting um, a more violent religious discourse uh, since, you know, since the establishment of the Saudi state. Um, however, 9-11 changed everything. Um, we're looking at the Saudi state being blamed for providing the foundations for extremism, uh, mainly because 15 out of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. Um, and the Syrian civil war as well. Here we're looking at Saudi clerics uh, and the religious establishment being blamed for motivating young Muslims to travel to Iraq and Syria to fight in the war, which contributed to the rise of ISIS. So we're looking at um, the international condemnation of um, extremism, but also Saudi Arabia being blamed for some of the issues taking place in the region. So the Saudi religious establishment in particular decided to correct misconceptions. And you've witnessed a number of Saudi clerics arguing that we don't promote takfir, we're very different from this uh, from ISIS, we're definitely not supportive of groups such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And some of these clerics actually blame the Muslim Brotherhood, arguing that uh, they're very motivated um, by Muslim Brotherhood's activism. So very different from what Salafism is all about. So we don't really endorse such practices. So here you're looking at active involvement of Saudi clerics, both activists and also quietists trying to dissociate themselves from um, violent extremism. Other religious traditions have also been very critical of the Saudi religious establishment, but also Saudi religious discourse in general. Because when you look at the justifications provided by ISIS, they're very similar to what the Saudi religious establishment advocates. So these are some, some of the issues that actually motivated the religious establishment to change their discourse and also promote some um, a more tolerant approach to Salafism. And I would say that some of them have been quite successful um, in distancing themselves from ISIS, but arguing that we have to be very critical and assess Salafi ideology as well, because we cannot endorse violence. And that's not something that we want to do. My last question, I guess, would be more towards you. So if we get people that want to discuss further with you about these topics, where can they reach you and get in contact with you? Of course. Thank you so much, Emma, for, for having me on board. If people want to contact me about my research um, and to learn more about Salafism and also clerical trends in the Middle East, um, you can send me an email. You can also contact me on Twitter. So my email address is Raihan, so that's my first name, dot Ismail, so my last name, at anu.edu.au. Thanks for listening to this in-depth episode. Make sure to check out YDS on social media, where you'll find articles and info about upcoming events. We'll see you next week.